Our text tonight is going to be from 1 John. So I would invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John, and we're going to begin reading in verse 5, and then go down, well, go down through the second chapter, reading the first two verses. Now, we have been reading through 1 John on Sunday evenings now for the last few weeks, so I'm sure that your mind is pretty fresh and pretty oriented as to the context of the book and the purpose of the book. John is writing to fight against heresy. There is false doctrine being spread amongst the churches where John is a part and probably established these churches. And it's agreed by most scholars, and I would also agree that these were most likely the early Gnostics, that Gnosticism that would rise up in the uh, second century would uh, find some of their roots here in the men that are stirring up trouble in these churches that John is a part. And so John is com uh, writing to combat this heretical doctrine. And the last time that I was able to exhort for you, we looked at the first four verses of chapter 1. And perhaps you will remember that we learned through looking at this text that John is teaching us we have access to the true Christ through primarily the preaching of the apostolic gospel. And that through access to the true Christ, we have fellowship with God. And not only do we have fellowship with God, but because we do, we also have access to the fullness of joy. As we move into this next section... John is going to talk about how our fellowship with God has a direct impact upon our relationship with sin. How does fellowship with God affect our relationship with sin? None of us go unscathed from the fall, do we? All of us are sitting here tonight, feeling the effects of the fall in our everyday lives. And I want us to recognize that the only way that you and I are going to progress in our sanctification, that God continuing to remove that remaining sin that is in us, is to first be established in good biblical theology. Because I think that you recognize, as I do, that not only am I going to be sinned against this week, but I'm also going to, in some way, to some degree or another, I'm going to sin against another human being this week as well. That I'm also going to be guilty because there is remaining sin in me, just like there's remaining sin in all of God's people until He glorifies us. And John is going to begin uh, this section tonight with a beautiful, profound piece of theology that is going to ground us in how do we relate with our sin. When we sin against another this week, or when someone sins against us, what theology can hold us up and help us to move forward as God continues to sanctify us and to make us into the image of Christ. So pay close attention to that as we read tonight. Before we read, though, 
Let's begin by inviting the presence of our Lord with us and ask that he would add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please pray with me. God, our helper, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds that as the scriptures are read and as your word is proclaimed, that you would lead us into your truth and that you would teach us your will. For the sake of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray and in his name we ask. Amen. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, the word of the Lord says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Perhaps you have uh, been like me and found yourself daydreaming of what it would have been like to have walked with God in the cool of the day in that garden like Adam and Eve did. I find myself from time to time just imagining what that must be like to have walked with God feeling None of the effects of sin. The peace of no guilt in my mind over the things that I had done. The, the, maybe the pain or the physical weakness that I feel because sin has ravaged the world, not affecting me. Just walking and talking with my Lord in complete, perfect peace. What would that have been like? It soothes me to even think about that. And yet we know how Genesis 3 ends, don't we? We, we read some of that tonight, that, that Adam and Eve lost that, not only for themselves, but for us. They lost it for us too. And you and I are living with the effects of that this very night. What was, their, what was the telltale sign in the garden? Think back to the rest of that chapter, what was the telltale sign 
that they had lost that sweet fellowship with God? What was the first sign outwardly that you could see that sin had entered the picture? The very last verse of our reading tonight says that they sewed fig leaves together. They tried to cover up their nakedness. They immediately tried to hide the reality of their sin. And then when they feel God's presence enter the garden, what do they do? They run and they hide. And then whenever they are confronted with God over the fact that they had indeed sinned, what do they do? Blame shift. It was the woman you gave me. Oh no, Lord, it, 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 was, the, it was the serpent that deceived me, right? This desperate attempt to reject the reality of their sin. And if you are also like me, I have, in, at least in the past, at least the good theology brain of mine you know, says this isn't true, but somewhere in my heart there's this subtle thinking that if I had been in the garden, I would have chosen better. Right, God, you should have put me to the test. This whole thing would have turned out differently. We deceive ourselves into thinking that, don't we? But if there is one thing that we learn from history class, you might not remember anything else about history. I don't remember a lot of dates and important people's names. That just it, It's a loss to me. But the one thing that I learned in history class that I have always remembered is the old adage that history always... What? Repeats itself. And the garden has repeated itself over and over and over and over again in human history. And it was repeating itself in John's day. Because in John's day there were a group of heretics, like we said, probably the predecessors of the early Gnostics, who were trying to cover up their nakedness. They were trying to hide from God. They were trying to blame shift and deny the reality of their sin. They were trying to deny the reality of the fall. Look at what John says right there in verse 6. He said that they claimed to be in fellowship with God while simultaneously what? Walking in darkness. Ridiculous, stupid, self-contradictory statement. And my friends, nothing has changed from Eden to the first century to the 21st century. Because you and I repeat Eden every day. Nothing has changed about the fellowship that we have with God. Our fellowship with God hinges upon whether or not we are walking in the light or in darkness. And so I think that when we look at this text tonight, what we're going to see is two major emphases that John makes. Two juxtaposing realities, okay? The first is that living in the darkness severs our fellowship with God. You cannot be in fellowship with God while walking in darkness. And the opposite is also true, that when we bring our sin into the light, when we live in the light, it unites us in fellowship with God.
So what is our relationship with the light tonight? Let's look at it together. I think as we examine that living in the darkness severs our fellowship with God, there are three really good logical reasons that we can pull out of this text that support that, okay? And the first one is this, that when we are living in the darkness, we are denying the reality of our sin. We, we, we deny that our sin exists. We're trying to cover it up. Look at what he says in verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's the implication here that John is writing because these people who were spreading false doctrine in his day were implying that they had ceased from a sin nature. He says, if we say we have no sin, if we say that we are sinless, that these early Gnostics would have believed that if they came to a secret knowledge that God had given to them that they could pass down to you, you, like they, could cease from a sin nature. You would no longer have that proclivity to sin. You would no longer desire sin. It would be gone. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's more than that. Look, look at verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, or if we say we have not committed the acts of sin, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. So that not only were they saying they had ceased from a sin nature, but they were, and I guess we can at least give them credit for being logical, they also would say that they no longer committed acts of sin. I don't know how they looked in the mirror or reflected on their day and could have peace with that idea. But they said that they no longer sinned and that whatever that they did against you that you thought was sin, that was your problem because they didn't sin. Imagine that. They, in, in, in essence, were giving themselves a false assurance, weren't they? Because when we deny the reality of our sin, that's dangerous business. There is a true assurance of faith that we have, right? What is that assurance? That the, that the guilt we have has been placed upon Christ. And the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. And that when we stand before God, He does not see our sin. He sees His Son. He sees His righteousness. That's the gospel. This is anti-gospel. John's going to later talk about the spirit of anti Christ. This is not the message that sinners need to hear, that we can attain salvation based upon our own merit, that we in and of ourselves can become holy, that we in and of ourselves can go back to Eden and do what Adam should have done in and of ourselves. That's not the gospel. And that's not what sinners need to hear, but neither do Christians need to hear it. Because if we're not careful, that kind of thinking slips into our, our lives and how we live. I was thinking about this morning how we sang the hymn, that, that line that, that I love so much because I, I, I just feel it in my own life each and every day. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I 
Because even Christians repeat the fall by denying the reality of their sin. I do it. I do it any time that my wife comes up to me and she says, Jonathan, you were, you were very harsh in the way that you spoke to the children. You were very harsh in the way that you spoke to me. Or even like this morning whenever my kids were making me run late for church, very late for church. I missed most of Josh's Sunday school lesson this morning because my children were making me late for church, could not get them in the car to save my life, and with every passing minute I just felt the, the angst rising up in me and eventually it started to bubble over onto my children. And if I was not careful, what I would do is I would say, well, you know what, they shouldn't have made me late. And they should not have. But my sinning against them doesn't fix that problem. My, my sin against my children doesn't fix, and it wasn't even sin in their case, they're just being kids. But I could easily justify myself for all the things that I do. I could find reasons to cover it up and say, well, that's not really sin. I'm justified in acting the way that I'm acting. In what ways do you justify your sin? In what ways do you and I cover it up with all sorts of excuses and reasons and justifications? How easy it is to take a convicting sermon and to apply it to everybody else in the room except for me. No, we, we must not cover up or deny the reality of our sin. That's what it means to live in darkness. But secondly, not only do we deny the reality of sin when we live in darkness, but we do this because fundamentally we have rejected God's revelation concerning our sin. Well, why would somebody deny the reality of their sin? Well, it's because they don't believe what God has said about sin. Look at what John says in, at the end of verse 10 again. He says, if we say we have not sinned, what do we do? We make Him a liar. We make God out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. You could almost hear the serpent in their ear. Did God really say you're a sinner? Did God really say that you continue to sin against Him? Aren't you a Christian? You're not really a sinner. You will not surely die. Oh yes, Satan, that's exactly what God has said. We could cite passage after passage like Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Or we could even go to Romans 7 where Paul says, O wretched man that I am. God has told us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior and that we continue to wrestle with remaining Corruption. We must not look at God and say, God, you have diagnosed me wrongly. Secularism has done that, hasn't it? 
the world in which you and I live, the culture of America today, secularism says that truth is sentimental. It is, it's based on my feelings. That, that what is true for me is based upon what works for me. And what's true for you is what works for you. No one is to be held accountable to anything or anyone but themselves. And the only sin I think that really remains in our culture anymore is if you remove someone else's right to express themselves however they want to express themselves. That's the only sin that remains. There is no objective truth. No one wants to hear about their, their greed, their hate, their lust, their lying, their cheating, their stealing. No one wants to hear about that. Why? Because there's no such thing as sin anymore. Why is there no such thing as sin anymore? Because we have rejected what thus saith the word of the Lord. And the philosophical mores of our day can enter into the Christian life also very incognito if we are not careful, can't it? John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, listen to what he said. I just thought it was so penetrating. Quote, John's affirmation is equally applicable today to those who deny the fact or guilt of sin by seeking to interpret their guilt in sin solely in terms of physiology, psychology, or social issues. I am what I am because I was born this way. Or, my parents made me this way. Or, my environment shaped me into this. As true as that may be to some degree or another, it does not erase the fact that we are what we are because of sin and because of our desire. It's not sin, God. It's science. It's biology. It's nature or it's nurture, God. There, there is no sin in me. We must not reject what God has said about our sin and our need for a Savior. In the darkness, we reject God's revelation of our sin and thereby we deny our sin. And let me tell you what the result of that is, as best as I can tell. The most frightening result of this is that when we reject God's revelation and we deny our sin, we prevent our opportunity for salvation. We prevent having fellowship with God. I want you to, maybe in your minds, I just imagine the door of salvation, as though it were a real physical door, and it just slams in your face. Now your nose to wood, shocked, awed, confused. How this door has been slammed in your face until you look down and realize that your arm is crooked and your fingers are white-knuckled around the knob because you have slammed the door of salvation in your own face because of your own unbelief. That's what we do in our sin. That's what we do apart from the, from, from, from the power of the Holy Spirit taking out a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Because unless we acknowledge our sin, 
We will not repent of our sin. And unless we repent of our sin, we will never be forgiven for our sin. Because what? Think about Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what shall we do? The crowd asked. And Peter said, repent. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. For what? For the forgiveness of sin. Children in the room, listen to me for a moment. Maybe even parents, listen. Shoveling your dirty clothes and toys under the bed does not clean the room. Because eventually the underwear that should have went to the laundry is going to cause a worse problem as it sits beneath the bed. Denying that you are sick doesn't make you well. It only exacerbates your sickness. For those who think that life, the life of Billy the Kid or Raymond Reddington is a fun life and living on the lamb, running from the law would be exciting, it's not. Because eventually when you are caught and brought before the judge, the penalty is even worse once you see justice. John has shown us that hiding our sin in the darkness only brings death. Keeping our sin in the darkness is not the solution. So what is? The solution to our sin is found in the light of God's holiness. God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. Well then, if you're a good theologian, the next question you're going to ask is, well, how am I supposed to live in the light of God's holiness? How can I stand before a holy God as a sinner? How can I survive such presence? That is a fantastic question. I think that the answer is found in the gospel. Surprise, okay? If you were looking for a surprise punchline, it's not here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me. I want your eyes on this. Go to 2 Corinthians super quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can click to it in your phone, whatever gets you there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want us to look at what Paul says. Chapter 4, verse 4. God's Word says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Where does God's, the light of His holiness and grace meet? In Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. For God who said, let, there, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ. Therefore, 
Don't hide your sin in the darkness. Don't live in the darkness. Drag your sin into the light. Because living in the light unites us in fellowship with God. And I believe that John's logic works in the exact same way that we have just demonstrated. Look, look at this. In the darkness, we deny our sin. But in the light, we acknowledge our sin. Rather than hiding our sin and trying to cover it up, we live like David who in Psalm 51, when he was confronted for his adultery and his murder, what did he say? For I know my transgression. He said, I'm a transgressor. I have committed actual sin, O God. I have broken your law. I am a transgressor. But then he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Why do I transgress? Because I am a sinner by nature. David was not a Gnostic. David confessed his sin. He acknowledged his sin as creatures of the light. Far from rejecting the fall, we acknowledge it. And we recognize our need for a Savior. Secondly, whereas in the darkness we reject God's revelation concerning our sin, in the light we trust God's revelation for our sin. If in the darkness we're, we're not in the truth like he says in verse 8, or if we don't practice the truth like he says in verse 6, or we call God a liar, like John says in verse 10, then logically, to be in the light means that we trust God's Word. We rest in God's Word. And we practice God's Word. How do we know what God has said about our sin? How, how, how do we know? Well, we said earlier that God has point-blank told us about our sin. He's not hidden that reality from us, has He? But not only has He expressly talked to us and told us about our sin, but He has even revealed to us our sin by revealing His holiness to us. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. John Calvin in his institute says, It is evident that no man ever attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God. And then after he has contemplated the face of God, he comes down and he looks at himself. You go out on a bright summer afternoon in South Georgia and... The light is just so bright and it's so hot. And what do you do? You reach for your sunglasses because you're squinting to get down the road. It's bright. And you think that that's what the glory of the sun truly is. Until you attempt a direct look into the sun itself and all of a sudden... What you thought was so bright before you that requires sunglasses looking directly into the source of light itself, you realize 
that you cannot even behold it. It is so bright. It is so radiant. We think that we are holy. We think that we are good people. We humor ourselves into thinking that we're better than the average Joe until we take a look directly into the holiness of God and we realize just how vile we are. And when we rest in the light, we don't deny that reality. When we rest in the light, we don't accept anything less than our need for a Savior. And so here's the logical sequence as we get ready to come to a close, okay? Because we trust God's revelation of our sin, we acknowledge our sin. And because we acknowledge our sin, we can confess our sin. And that repentance leads us unto salvation. Isaiah stood before the holiness of God. You remember that in Isaiah chapter 6? He's seeing God high and lifted up. His trains filling the temple. All these gorgeous seraphim are just surrounding the throne crying, Holy, holy, holy. And what does it do to Isaiah? The Bible says that he became undone. R.C. Sproul says he has a nervous breakdown. It completely unravels him. He says he's destroyed. He's done. He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of un." clean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What does Isaiah do when he sees the holiness of God? Does he hide his sin? Does he run from the presence of God? Does he just blame it on his environment? No, he repents. Woe is me! And what's God's response? And one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Repentance because of the grace and mercy of God brings salvation. How can God do this? On what grounds can God forgive us for our hideous sin that we have mounted up? How can He forgive us with the incongruent act of repentance? I think John answers that question for us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ is our advocate. Our heavenly high priest right now is standing before the most holy place, pleading our case before the Father. And He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, any good lawyer who goes to court knows you don't go to court unless you have a case. And Christ is not going before the Father with our righteousness. He wouldn't have a case 
He goes before the Father with his righteousness. And he says, Father, do not see their sin. See my righteousness. Because it's theirs too. And he is the propitiation. He is able to stand before the Father and plead our case on his righteousness because he is the propitiation. He is the one who satisfied divine justice for us on the cross. He is the one who took the wrath of God so that we did not have to. Christ, our high priest, has torn the veil. And He has brought us into the most holy place. And there with Him we tonight dwell. He has done more for us, friends, than take us back to Eden. He's done more than take us back to Eden. He has purchased for us a glory that far exceeds Eden. Because we enjoy the fullness of His Spirit now, but the day is going to come when even the remaining corruption that we experience is totally gone. And on that day, we will not simply walk with Him in the cool of the day. When that happens, we will walk with Him every moment of an endless day. Where sin is nothing but a distant memory. And what memory of sin we have just brings us more praise that by we might give Him more glory for His precious salvation. So when you're tempted this week to throw a blanket over your sin, when you're tempted this week to look at yourself in the mirror and you loathe yourself for the mistakes that you made, don't try to hide it. Don't try to deny it. Bring it into the light. Cast them at the foot of the cross. And know that your redemption has been purchased. And that Christ is your righteousness. And that you are a child of the light. Not of the darkness. Let's pray. Father, how can we truly and fully understand such amazing truth? It seems too good to be true, Lord. And yet we dare not reject Your Word that You have said that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and that we are children of the day, not children of the night. And so, Lord, I pray that as we witness to our unconverted friends, and Lord, as we even continue to deal with the remaining corruption in our own hearts, that You would comfort us with the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the light of the world. Take these truths, stamp them upon our hearts, and You will be given the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.